The Rasmussen Daily Presidential Tracking Poll is a survey of 1,500 likely American voters. Every night, respondents are reached by phone or online. The poll measures the job approval rating of America's president. Pollsters ask the citizens if they approve or disapprove of the president's performance. They even record if the voters strongly approve or strongly disapprove. All the numbers are rolled into a presidential approval index that provides a gauge of public opinion. It's a daily White House report card. And presidents pay attention. National Journal says the following about this type of polling. Let's not kid ourselves. Since the advent of public opinion surveys, all presidents, save Truman, have been avid consumers of poll data. Nixon's advisors even stored polls in a safe. Polls are here, and they remain a valuable guide for gauging the pulse of democracy. Though public opinion polling might reveal the pulse of democracy, it can be the death nail of Christianity. A pastor or a church leader will be called on to say and do hard things. Following God is often the path less traveled. Thus, he has to keep his eyes on the one he's following, not on those who are commenting on his journey. Bible teacher Alan Redpath put it, No man can lead a work of God if he allows himself to be governed by what other people think. In the church, opinion polls are not our friend. Yet here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we find that Paul's performance was being monitored by the church in Corinth's daily tracking poll. And his approval rating was tanking. And here Paul tells us how much he cares. Not much. Certainly Christian ministry needs to be engaged conscientiously, taken very seriously. In fact, from the perspective of eternity, a pastor's performance is more strategic than the president's. But it can't be steered by public opinion. A United States president serves 319 million people, but a Christian has a constituency of one. In these first five verses of 1 Corinthians 4, Paul explains the motivation behind his ministry. He takes his cues from God alone, not the thinking of fallible people. And Paul's attitude stands as an example to all Christians. What I want to do this morning is read our text, and then we'll go back through and we'll look verse by verse. Chapter 4 begins, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Paul tells us here in verse 1, Let a man so consider us 
as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is not how the Corinthians had been considering Paul and the other men God had used to minister in this church. The Corinthians had bought into a celebrity mindset. In Corinth, the apostles met TMZ. The Christians in Corinth were treating God's servants like celebrities. Now remember, the Corinthians were Greeks, and Greeks were renowned for their fables. They attached human traits to a mythological pantheon of gods and goddesses. And then they lived vicariously through these demigods. And we Americans do something very similar through today's pantheon of celebrities. Musicians and actors and athletes and divas and reality star shows and even YouTube sensations. We turn certain people into a special class to whom we can attach our own unrealized hopes and dreams. Realize we've always had our heroes, folks that we look up to because of their character, because of their bravery. Heroes are good. But today we have celebrities, people who haven't necessarily done anything brave or noble. They just entertain us and they craft an image that attracts public attention. And this isn't so good. Often it leads to tragedy. The person assigned the celebrity status crashes under the pressure and his or her fans end up disillusioned. Unlike hero, celebrity has very little to do with character. And even Christians are guilty of this celebrity mindset. This is what had happened in the church at Corinth. Some were of Paul, others of Apollos, still some were of Peter. All three of these apostles were legitimate heroes. They were humble men, but the Corinthians had turned them into celebrities. They had put them on a pedestal. Celebrities are admired because they intrigue us, or we think they're hip, or they make us laugh, and all that's fine, but the church is built on Jesus Christ. Rather than follow the apostles' godly example, the Corinthians were using these men as wedges to divide They were forging petty allegiances to draw others into their camp rather than recognize that the apostles were servants of Christ. And Paul, one of those apostles, wanted nothing to do with fostering a celebrity status. This is why he goes to great effort here to nip it in the bud. You know, sadly, a lot of pastors will condemn celebrity culture in their teaching, but oh, they enjoy it in their actuality. They talk a good game but act in ways that foster a special class to which they belong. Bring on the perks and the privileges. Well, here Paul, he helps the starstruck to consider their leaders, not as celebrities, but as servants and as stewards. Verse 1 again, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. He's saying there's nothing special about an apostle or any Christian leader for that matter. We are simply servants. In fact, the word that Paul uses here for servant is not the common New Testament word for servant, or doulos. It's the word huperitis. Hupo means under, and ritis means rower. The term refers to an under rower or an under oarsman. Now remember, Corinth was a Roman port. Paul and the Corinthians had seen their share of the Roman galley ships. The Roman fleet was propelled by slaves who were confined to the ship's underbelly. 
They held the dry end of an oar. Their job was to row in cadence with the drummer. Attack speed was faster. Ramming speed was still faster. There's a famous scene from the classic movie Ben-Hur. You've seen it? You remember it? It features a Roman ship powered by slaves. And I'm going to show you a little clip to help you get the picture. But as you watch this, I want you to notice all the characters in the clip that Paul could have pointed to as an example of Christian ministry, but didn't. Check this out. When you compare this clip with Christian ministry, where do you place the minister? Where's Pastor Waldo in the picture? I mean, where in the picture is the godly leader? Are Christian leaders like the guys on the deck who are benefiting from the service of the hardworking people down below? Is the church leader the captain who takes his seat so he can watch other people do the work? Is it the strange-looking committee member in the background, kind of standing in the back, kind of doing nothing? Or is the leader the guy on the drum, keeping the beat, pushing people to do more? Or is leadership the guy with the whip, you know, cracking the whip, disciplining the slackers? The answer is none of the above. For when Paul identifies Christian leadership He is clear. The man of God is the slave pulling the oar. Paul says, I am an under rower. I am an under oarsman for Christ. How revolutionary is this picture? Paul says to the Corinthians, so consider us, not as celebrities, not as stars, but as oarsmen in a galley ship, servants of Christ. And did you notice these oarsmen? They weren't worried about other ships and sailors at sea. They were oblivious to what else was happening around them. Nor were they expert multitaskers. The oarsman didn't wear a lot of hats. His job was to grab the dry end of an oar and with that oar make a single stroke over and over and over. The roar didn't even have to set the pace. Cadence was not his responsibility. The speed was set by the captain. The oarsman had only one job. And that was to pull in rhythm with the person next to him. And this is the job of a church leader, a servant of Christ. My job, your job, is to take the oar that the Lord has given us, that he's put into our hand, hunker down, and learn to row together. We shouldn't even be concerned about how long we row or how fast we go. It's the Lord who sets the pace. Our job is to stick with it, to keep the beat. Maintain the same stroke week after week. God's call to the ministry isn't even all hands on deck. It's get below the deck where no one can see you. Grab an oar and start to row. If you want to be involved in Christian ministry at any level, you need to know that the entry-level job, the middle-level job, even the upper-level job is that of servant. 
God has never called anyone to be a star or a celebrity or a sensation, just a servant. Pastor Romaine was for years the assistant pastor at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. He used to tell young pastors, serve the Lord as if you're doing it in your underwear. What he meant by that, if you're wearing your skivvies, you're not going to be wanting people to notice you, will you? The idea is to get out there, serve the Lord, and then get out of the spotlight where nobody can see you. Be an underroar. This is what Paul says, that we're servants of Christ. Consider us as servants of Christ, as underroars. And then Paul adds, also as stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward was a household manager. He was a slave to his master, but he was a master to his fellow slaves. He ran the household in his master's stead. Needless to say, the steward needed to be trustworthy. He knew his master's heart. He understood his mind. He represented his master and carried out his wishes. He managed the affairs of the house as his master would. You see, the steward had all the responsibility for his master's estate, but without a sense of entitlement. It wasn't for him to take liberties or give himself perks. He didn't just handle things as his own. He handled them better than his own. Author Robert Fulgham, he tells a great story. One day, his little girl gave him a paper bag to take to work. When Fulgham asked what was in the bag, his daughter answered. He said, just some stuff. Take it with you. At lunch that day, he pulled out the paper bag and he poured out its contents on his desk. There were two ribbons, three stones, a plastic dinosaur, a pencil stub, a tiny seashell, some used lipstick, two chocolate kisses, and 13 pennies. Well, Dad looked at it and he chuckled. He finished up his lunch and then he swept everything off into the wastebasket. But when he arrived home that night, his daughter asked him about the bag. Where's the bag, Daddy? Well, honey, I left it at the office. Why do you ask? His daughter answered, Well, those are my things in the sack, Daddy. The things I really like. I thought you might like to play with them. Now I want them back. Well, when his little girl saw Fulgram hesitate, she began to cry. You didn't lose the bag, did you, Daddy? He assured her that he had it and that he would bring it home the next day. But as soon as his daughter got to sleep, he raced back to the office to make sure that the janitors had it thrown it away, that he could retrieve the contents. Thankfully, Molly's valuables were still there. He repacked the sack. He returned home. Later, he had Molly tell him why each of those items was so important to her. Fulgham writes, Molly had given me her treasures, all that a seven-year-old held dear, love in a paper sack, and I missed it. Not just missed it, I had thrown it away. Nothing in there I needed. It wasn't the first or last time I felt like my daddy permit had run out. (laughs) And to this dad's surprise, later Molly awarded him again. Same bag, same treasure. Fulgram said he felt forgiven. And over the next several weeks, he considered it a prize whenever Molly gave him the bag. Until one day... Molly gave him that bag and never asked for it back. She had moved on to other treasures. And I'll let Robert Fulgham finish his story. It sits in my office still, 
left over from when a child said, Here, this is the best I've got. Take it. It's yours. I missed it the first time, but it's my bag now. Today, that bag is one of his treasures. But he had to learn to be a steward. And this is how Paul defines a Christian leader. He or she is a steward of the mysteries of God. Our job is not to make stuff up. We don't invent or reinvent the message that we preach to sync with the opinion polls. No, we take the message that God has given us, His Word, His mysteries, and we handle them faithfully. And if we love God, we'll make sure that all the items in His bag stay in that bag. That nothing gets neglected, nothing gets lost. The Lord has told us that every item is strategic. There's the mystery of the cross. There's the mystery of the church. There's the mystery of His coming again. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16 tells us, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. These are all the truths that God has given to us to steward for our Master. Well, this is how Paul wants to be viewed by the church at Corinth. Not as a celebrity, but as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And then in verse 2, he explains the goal of a good steward. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say successful. He says faithful. You see, success is God's business. And what form it takes is up to him. Sometimes it's tangible. Other times it's spiritual. At times it's evident. At other times it's invisible. Sometimes it sprouts immediately. At other times it lies dormant for years and doesn't blossom until much later. If you make, your, if you make success your goal in serving Christ, you'll end up frustrated. Success in ministry can be elusive. Sometimes it's hard to measure. It's often a moving target. Our goal needs to be faithfulness. You know, we live in a world fascinated with the trappings of success, and often we apply these things to the church. In Christian circles, often the worth of a ministry is measured by bucks in the bank and buildings on the ground and buns in the seats. Often we let other people rob us of our joy in serving the Lord by imposing on us their measures of success. When will we learn we can't always measure spiritual success with earthly criteria? You can have lots of numbers, lots of nickels and noses, book deals and radio spots and lots of PR and still not be pleasing to God. Just check out the Mormons. They own half the state of Utah, yet they teach dangerous, damnable doctrines. Don't be fooled. True success in ministry is marked by one quality. Are you found faithful? Have you been obedient to what God has called you to do? Have you? In 1942, Clarence Jordan founded Koinonia Farm in Americus, Georgia. It was a place where blacks and whites could work together. It was a haven for racial unity and harmony. Well, in 1954, the Ku Klux Klan burned every building on the farm except Jordan's home. 
In the midst of the raid, Jordan recognized the voice of a local newspaper reporter. That next day, the same reporter came to do a story about the arson. The fire was still smoldering while this guy showed up. When he arrived, Clarence Jordan was in a field planting seeds. The reporter asked him, he said, I heard the news of the tragedy last night, and I came to do a story on the closing of your farm. Jordan just kept working the ground. The reporter kept talking. Clarence said nothing. Finally, the man asked him, You have two PhDs. You put 14 years into this farm. Now there's nothing left. Just how successful do you think you've been? Suddenly, Clarence Jordan, he stopped hoeing. He turned to the reporter and he said, You just don't get it, do you? You don't understand us Christians. What we're about is not success, but faithfulness. You see, come what may, despite what circumstances befall us, God has called every Christian to the ministry of faithfulness. Are you doing what God has called you to do? In 79 AD, when the Italian Mount Vesuvius erupted, it covered the city of Pompeii under a blanket of lava. Years later, when the ruins were excavated, a Roman sentinel was found. His body had hardened in the lava, but he was still standing next to his gate. In the chaos of the eruption, the guard had held his post. A famous painting by Edward Pointer immortalizes the soldier. The depiction is entitled, Faithful Unto Death. And like the sentinel, when the smoke clears on your life, on your circumstances, will you be found faithful? A good steward is faithful to what God has called him or her to be. This should be the goal of every Christian, not celebrity, but fidelity. Rather than consult the tracking poles, rather than watch the weather vane to see which way the wind is blowing, Paul's ministry was determined by his convictions. His goal was to serve the Lord Jesus and to steward the mysteries of God. Paul had a constituency of one. And in verses 3 through 5, he explains how he handled the opinions and the criticisms of the folks around him, which were plenty. Corinth had a Pastor Paul approval rating. They came out with it every Sunday. And because of the hard things Paul had to say to these Christians, they often strongly disapproved. And thus he says in verse 3, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. To Paul, it was a very small thing to be judged by his peers in Corinth. But notice, it was a thing. Paul didn't just dismiss the criticism outright. It was a thing. He thought it through. And this should be our practice as well. You know, seldom do we receive criticism void of content or any kind of merit. Even what comes from our harshest critic has an element of truth. No one should be above criticism. Note who it is that's critical. Note why it is they're critical. But in every storm of criticism, amidst all the thunder and lightning being generated, there are always a few raindrops of truth that you need to receive. No one ministers in a vacuum. We all should be open. Reminds me of the pastor who was being attacked by a bitter, vengeful woman in his church over and over again. Her loose lips were 
assaulting him and making his life miserable. One day he went to his dad for advice. His dad told him, he said, son, here's what you should do. Whenever that gal starts to make your life miserable, drop to your knees and pray, Lord, thank you that she's not my wife. (laughs) Hey, there's always a lesson to be learned. Well, the Pastor Paul approval index was a thing to be considered for sure. But to Paul, it was a very small thing. See, he had learned not to put much stock in human opinions. You need to know, folks are fickle. Trying to please people is like hitting a moving target. The bullseye is constantly changing. Humans are swayed by tradition and by prejudice and by bias and by likes and dislikes, by their own past experiences. Every human sees through a thick fog that blurs their vision. It's very rare to find a person who's truly able to be objective. And so here's the question. How much time do we spend worrying about what other people think of us? Often we focus on opinions that have zero bearing on the God-given mission for our life. We just like being liked. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul asked the believers in Galatia, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men... I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, you can't be a people pleaser and a God pleaser at the same time. Jesus put it this way, no man can serve two masters. When the Corinthians accused Paul, he considered the source. They were carnal, they were immature. He didn't have a lot of confidence in their spiritual discernment and thus he wasn't afraid to disregard their opinion of him. In fact, Paul justified his refusal to take heed to this church's criticism in three ways. First, in verse 3, he says, In fact, I do not even judge myself. I mean, why would Paul take to heart someone else's criticism when he didn't even judge himself? Paul wasn't afraid to cut himself some slack. Hey, you need to know, on my very best day, if I wanted to find some sin in my life, it wouldn't take me long. It wouldn't be hard. Like finding a rock in a rock pile, it'd be pretty easy. I am a flawed vessel. I have got cracks and fissures everywhere. The only reason I'm still holding water is because the grace of God is keeping me together. And like Paul, I've learned that rather than rake myself over the coals, it's better for me to just rest in God's grace. Rather than look inward, I need to look upward. And I learned this the hard way. Years ago, I ran with a group of Christians who were into self-examination. Man, they were brutal. They assumed that they were being super spiritual to spend lots of time and energy searching their heart for their hidden sins. And boy, it didn't take me much drilling before I hit oil. I was exploding geysers all the time. And yet all I really proved was the truth of Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So I got a wicked heart. Finally, it dawned on me that hyper-examination is not what the Bible teaches. This wasn't how Paul dealt with his sin. Instead of digging for sin, Paul reached for the heavens. 
He focused on knowing Christ and trusted the Lord to bring to light the flaws that he needed to address. You see, realize too much introspection only causes dejection. Spend all your time looking for sin, and you'll have very little time left to look to Jesus. Faith grows when we get our eyes off ourselves and our flaws and our failures, and we look to Him. I love the story of Elisha's stew in 2 Kings chapter 4. It'd make a great episode of diners, diners, divians, and drivians and dives, whatever it is, triple D. Apparently, Elijah, the old boy, he went out to find some ingredients for a stew. Well, he accidentally picked up a poison herb, and he threw it in the pot. Well, when he served it up, when the people began to taste it, they all started to shout, there's death in this pot. And this is the problem with the whole human race, is it not? Satan has interjected the poison of sin into this world. Sin now contaminates and spoils every aspect of life. There is death in our pot. But Elijah's solution wasn't to sift through the stew and to pick out the poisonous herb. Instead, Elijah pours in some flour. And it was the additive that neutralized and purified the stew. And this is Jesus' remedy for our sin. Hey, repent of your sin for sure. But once you do, start adding God's blessing to your life. Study His Word. Enjoy His joy. Taste His love. Walk in His Spirit. Lean on the fellowship of the body of Christ. Get caught up in Jesus. Time spent trying to clean up your life is wasted time. The Bible teaches us, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Paul is saying to us, rather than flush out all my flaws, I just need to choose to see myself in Christ. But there's another reason that Paul doesn't worry about what the Corinthians think of him. He says, for I know of nothing against myself. In essence, I've got a, I've got a clean conscience. Yet I am not justified by this. Paul won't judge himself because he doesn't trust his conscience. You see, God created the conscience as a moral compass. Your conscience is a built-in tool to help discern right and wrong, point you in true, to true north. But if it's wrongly calibrated, a compass can deceive you as well as can a conscience. Proverbs 14 verse 12 issues a warning. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way in which my conscience approves, but I can be misled. In other words, we're all vulnerable to blind spots. Sin is like food stuck between your two front teeth. Without a mirror, you're the last one to see it. Paul's conscience was clear, but a conscience can fool you. Realize the human conscience is a device with multiple inputs. Hopefully it's informed by the Bible, but it all too often gets trained by tradition or by culture or by your upbringing or by some prejudice or by even lies and error. You recall in Antioch, it was God's will for a Jewish Peter to lay aside his racial prejudice and eat with his Gentile brothers, but he did it. And why? It was a matter of conscience for him. 
But Paul had to stand up to Peter and tell him that his conscience was wrong. See, this is what John writes about in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Just because our heart or our conscience approves or disapproves doesn't necessarily make it right. God ultimately trumps our heart. He is greater than our conscience. Thus Paul writes, I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. I mean, his clean conscience might just be a proof of his ignorance. This is another reason Paul's only judge was Jesus. He tells us at the end of verse 4, but he who judges me is the Lord. Hey, the opinions of other people are fickle. Paul's own heart and conscience was fallible. The only judgment Paul trusted in was that of Jesus. And the Lord Jesus has postponed most of his judgments until a specific time, until a time yet future. This is the third reason that Paul didn't spend a lot of time judging himself. Was it time yet for judgment? God knew that Paul was still learning and growing. The verdict on Paul was still out. In fact, the verdict today on you and me is still being decided. And thus Paul writes in verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. This means that course corrections are still possible for you and me. We're all building our eternity right now. You and I are still a work in progress. Our future judgment can still be affected. Your life is not yet a wrap. Your destiny is still not a lock. Not until you die or until Jesus returns. In other words, there's hope. And God doesn't want to sabotage by a premature judgment. I mean, don't tell someone they've got a good reward. Not yet. They still got time to mess up. To get lazy. To get distracted. But neither tell them they're going to be beggars in heaven. Not when they still have an opportunity to lay up some treasure. I mean, a premature judgment, good or bad, can derail us. Paul had no idea how much time was left. But the whistle hadn't blown. And he was going to play hard until the game was over. While the clock was still ticking, it wasn't time to add up the score or to declare a victor. To do so, as Paul said, would be to judge before the time. Here's an encouraging thought when it comes to our eternal rewards. Nothing has been decided yet. If you're a Christian... You still have time and space to make your life count and to do something for Jesus' sake. There's still a crown in your future. There's still a reward from your Savior that you can give back to Him in praise. The word shipwreck doesn't get written over a life until the person whose life it is crosses time into eternity. Before that moment, all boats still float. Your Christian life, your wasted years are still salvageable. God spoke by the prophet Joel to his people Israel. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I mean, the locusts were God's judgment on the nation's sin. But it wasn't a final judgment. If 
God's people would return to him with their whole heart. He was ready to restore them and willing to do something great and grand and glorious still in their lives. I'm not sure you've noticed, but of all the judgmental people in the world, no one is quite so quick to render a verdict as an umpire. Can you believe these guys? Always judging. These guys have got the nerve. They're so haughty, calling people out, ringing them up. Of course, I'm being a little facetious here. Judgment is an umpire's job. And no umpire is perfect. Every ump blows a call now and then. They make a mistake from time to time. This is why I empathize with umpires. The only time I get mad at an ump is when he's out of position to make the call. When he was too lazy to get himself in place. And this is why Paul doesn't put much stock in the current judgments from other people. For the Corinthians were not in a position to judge Paul. They couldn't see the whole picture. They didn't know Paul's heart. They didn't know the circumstances he faced. They didn't see the pressure he was under. And this is what makes our judgment so superficial. Do do we really know what that other person faces? Do we really? Oh, you can examine the fruit from my life. You can test my doctrine with Scripture. But you don't know my heart, my motivation. God hasn't made you soul patrol. Only the Lord himself has all the facts. I'll never forget years ago now, a couple came to me for premarital counseling. And and in the course of the conversation, it surfaced that they were living together. When I heard that, I insisted on the idea of imposed separation. I still believe that if you want to do a relationship God's way, you'll start before you get married, not afterwards. And yet, as soon as I suggested the arrangement, this lady, she jumped up and she bolted from the room in tears. What I didn't know was that a few days earlier, the apartment the two were now living in had been broken into and that she had been raped. Her boyfriend had moved in reluctantly. He was sleeping on the couch to protect his fiancée. Oh, it wasn't what I had assumed. I apologized to the couple for jumping to a conclusion before I knew the whole story. And that's the point, isn't it? Only Jesus knows the whole story of every story. And Paul tells us here that it's not until he returns that Jesus will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. He says, then each one's praise will come from God. Based on our limited perspective, based on how out of position we are to make such calls, what if we started passing out eternal rewards today? Oh my, we'd get it all wrong, wouldn't we? We'd exalt some people the Lord is planning to humble. And no doubt we'd overlook folks He is going to richly reward. It's by avoiding these kinds of judgments and deferring them to Jesus in the day He returns, that it'll all get sorted out right in the end. In the meantime, be under roars for Jesus Christ. Be a servant of Christ. Be a steward of God's mysteries. And in the end, be found faithful. Father, we thank